you know, the relationship wasn't working. It got to a point where they knew that it needed to end. And, and if you ever had a relationship like that and you just didn't know how to end it, you didn't know how to pull the trigger on, on ending the relationship, they designed a website just for you where I'm not saying you should do it, but they do the dirty work for you. And they have, of course, a small fee they charge for it. So for $10, they can send a breakup text for you. To the person that you want to end the relationship, for $10, they'll send a text. For $20, they'll send a formal letter saying that you have ended the relationship and you no longer you know, want to have your affection towards them. For $30, they can send a formal letter telling the whole story with lots of explanations and proving to them that this is not a joke. This is real, right? It sounds harsh. It sounds cold. I'm not saying I recommend it, but there's a reason that this got on the Today Show. There's a reason this got on multiple different avenues and outlets because there, there is a need out there as people struggle with relationships because relationships are hard. And, and what makes it hard is the harder or the, the, the more meaningful the relationship, the harder it is to end that relationship. Here's why I tell you that is because so many people today, unfortunately, are ending their relationship with the church. So many people today. One of the reasons we're doing this series that we're doing is because there, there are people leaving the church in droves, especially young people. In 2019, this is before the pandemic, in 2019 there was a study done by uh, the Barna Group that they found 70% of students who grew up in church, get this, leave between the ages of 18 to 22. But here's the fascinating detail that they also found. Out of those people who left, only 10% only 10% said they were leaving faith in Jesus. In other words, what they're saying is, I want to leave the church, but I don't want to leave my faith in Jesus. I want to hold on to my faith in Jesus, but I'm not so sure about this church thing. I, I don't know what to do about the church. Now, there's lots we could talk about, and we're not going to dive hard into that. But here's another thing that was fascinating in the study. They asked them why they didn't want to be a part of the church, and one of the top reasons... One of the top reasons was the church's relationship with injustice. It's becoming more and more common as people talk about what, what's called now their deconstruction stories or they're leaving the faith or, or they're struggling with what they believe. What is becoming more and more common now as people break up with the church is they have this question about how do I make sense of the church and injustice? In, in a sense, it's not really a new problem, but it's becoming much more public. And so today we're continuing this series we've been walking through called Christianity's Biggest Questions. And we've been walking through difficult questions, things that really are, are worthy of multiple sermons, multiple studies. But as we look at each of these topics, we come now to another difficult topic about justice. And as we come to this topic, there's so many things that, that come to mind and they flood to our imagination. And as people, maybe you're here today, you're struggling with the church. And maybe, maybe this is a question you've been struggling with. Or maybe today you know somebody in your life, whether it's a loved one or a friend at your job or, or a neighbor down the street, whatever it is, they are struggling with the church because of this question. What I want to challenge us in today is this. 
I want to challenge you to reimagine your struggle, not as a, a, a question of should I break up with the church, but maybe I can break through. Maybe I can break through. What do I mean by that? What if the church's call is, or, or what, what if the injustice done in the name of the church is not the same as the call of the church? In other words, maybe you're not breaking up with the church. Maybe what you're doing is breaking through to finally see what the church was called to be. That's what I want us to consider. So as we look at that for just a few moments, I, I want to ask this question. What is the call of the church to do justice, right? So let's first look at what Jesus has to say about justice here in Matthew chapter 23. If you're taking notes today, the first point is doing justice, doing justice. Look at verse 23 with me. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, if you're familiar with this chapter, Jesus is in the middle of giving what people have called seven woes, his seven woes. And now we jump in at his fourth woe. And the woes were, were this uh, lament that people would give at a funeral service. Right? So the woes were something that you were expressing sadness, you were, you were mourning, you were, you were grieving over the death of something or someone. Right? And so when Jesus, when you hear him saying, woe, woe to you, woe to you, don't hear Jesus self-righteously condemning somebody. Jesus is actually more accurately grieving over somebody. Jesus is grieving over the Pharisees, how they've missed their calling. And why have they missed their calling? What he's saying is you've been tithing, you've been tithing the, the spices in your cabinet. Like you're, you're down to the 10th of the spices in your cabinet, so focused on this small thing, yet ironically you've been neglecting these weightier things. In other words, you, you've been focused literally on the light things, the, the things that are, are just the spices in your cabinet that don't weigh anything, and now you've neglected this weightier thing. What is it? What, what's the weightier thing? Jesus defines the weightier matters as justice, mercy, and faithfulness. When Jesus says these are the weightier things, he's saying these are the things that matter. These are the things that are heavy. These are the things that if you were to weigh them, they would outweigh everything else. These are the things you should be focused on. Now, Jesus, listen, is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Micah chapter 6. In Micah chapter 6, 8, it says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? There they are, the same three. Justice, mercy, humility. All three of these are essential, is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, these, these are the things that it means to do the weightier matters. These are different aspects of love. And if we had time, I would focus in on all three of them. But today, we're just looking at one of the three. What is justice? What is justice? Well, we're going to go back into some Hebrew class here. There's, primar there's two primary Hebrew words for justice. You ready? Mishpat and Zedekah. Mishpat and Zedekah. Mishpat, someone say Mishpat. Mishpat, it occurs over 200 times in the Old Testament. Right? And Mishpat's basic meaning is to treat people equitably. It means that you give people their proper due, whether that's proper punishment or proper protection, whatever it is, but you're treating them equitably to give them what they are due. 
right? And so mishpat uh, was actually what the society would be judged by. So if, if a society was a righteous society, it, would because their, it was because their mishpat was, it was uh, godly, it, w- it was righteous, it was, it was the way it should be. And so you could kind of summarize mishpat as having right rules or right policies, right? It's, it's the bigger picture of what's happening in a society. And then the second word, zedeka, is about right relationships, right relationships. And so these two are brought together over three dozen times in the Old Testament. Three dozen times. Old Testament scholar Bruce Walke, he says it this way. He says, together they give a holistic relational reality of justice. Together, these two words about justice, they they come together and they give a holistic relational reality. In other words, it's right rules and it's right relationships. You hear that? It's right rules and policies, systems, structures, and it's right relationships. That's what justice looks like when those two things come together. And so I know the the terminology today in in our political climate, social justice has some political baggage, but I just want to say, as your pastor, biblically, there is no such thing as justice that isn't social. It's always social. It's always relational. Now, how you want to use that terminology, that's fine. Whatever you want to go with. But, but the Bible's view of justice is it's always relational. It's always social. It, it links us together as who we are in the right rules and the right relationships. And the way it happens, the way it happens is justice requires lowering ourselves to lift up others. Let me explain for a second. So, you know the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19? Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, he, he hears about Jesus coming to his town. And so Zacchaeus famously climbs the tree, right? Because G- Jesus is coming down the road and he can't see Jesus. So he climbs up in the tree to get up higher. He sees Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, Jesus cries out or calls out to, to Zacchaeus and says, come down, I'm going to your house today, right? When Jesus invites himself over to your house, you say yes, and so Zacchaeus is like, all right, I'm, I'm going to have you over. And so Jesus comes over to Zacchaeus' house. And Zacchaeus is not the type of person that normally had guests over. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector who was stealing money from his own people. The tax collectors basically lobby for the opportunity to have the rights to take taxes from people. And now that they have the rights, they could take as much as they want. So the way it worked was you would pay the Roman government, who was the oppressor of Israel, you would pay them money to then steal more money from your own people. That's Zacchaeus. Everyone hated Zacchaeus. So now Jesus goes over to Zacchaeus' house, and Zacchaeus is so stunned by Jesus' grace and mercy towards him that the first thing Zacchaeus says when he comes over to his house is he makes a declaration I'm going to give back all the money I've stolen, plus fourfold. He says, all the money I've taken unjustly from my own people that I've stolen unrighteously, that I've gained, whether whether he earned it or whether he bought into it, whatever it was, he stole all this money. He said, I'm going to give it back to all the poor that I've wronged and more. And when Jesus hears that, Jesus says, Salvation has come to this house today. 
Jesus isn't saying, because you gave the money away, now you're saved. He's not saying Zacchaeus earned his money or earned his salvation. What he's saying about Zacchaeus is this is fruit of someone who really is saved. He's saying, because you are doing justice to lower yourself, Zacchaeus, to lift up the people that you've wronged, it's evidence that you have salvation. Salvation has come to this house today. That's justice, right? This, this is the loving justice that Jesus is saying is weighty. It's weighty. Now listen, the church, this, this kind of justice is not new to the church. I mean, ju- the church has been doing justice for centuries, for millennia. I mean, here's just a few historical relevant facts. Christians have built more hospitals and orphanages to serve the suffering than any other movement in history bringing health to millions upon millions upon millions of people. Christians have transformed worldwide literacy rates, changing future generations and their opportunities. Christians have founded the entire university system, championing education and sparking the the scientific revolution under the conviction that all creation is for God's glory. Christians have organized resistance movements against the atrocities of the Nazis and other regimes. Christians have led the movement to abolish slavery in not only America, but the UK, India, Africa, the Middle East, South America. These are the the heritage of Christian justice. Has the church been involved in injustice? Unfortunately and absolutely, yes. And we'll get to that in a minute. But before we talk about the injustice that the church has done and has been a part of, you have to hear the call to justice that Jesus has always infused into his people and has always held his people to that standard. Jesus is saying, just because there's injustice doesn't mean that's not your calling. You've been called to it, right? We have to know the church has been called to do justice and it has been doing justice. And it's always been about right rules and right relationships, personally and corporately. That, that means me lowering myself to lift up someone else. That means us lowering ourselves as a people to lift up other groups of people. That's what it means to do justice, right? And so by its very nature, justice is a giving and injustice is a taking. So justice means that we give up our privilege for the poor. It means that we make space for the, to center, center the marginalized. It means that we use our power to benefit the powerless, right? It's this constant giving of myself of what I have, not taking what others have. You hear it? This is the call. But listen, that call to justice is hard. It is very difficult. It's very costly. When Zacchaeus said to Jesus, I'm going to give all that I've taken and more, that cost him something. And so why do we neglect that? This is what I want to look at second. Uh, what, what, what makes us neglect our call to justice? This is the second point, neglecting justice. Look back at verse 23. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, the word hypocrite literally means actor, right? So a hypocrite is someone in in the Greek plays who would put on a mask that they would wear that mask while they're performing in the play. So very simple idea. You're wearing the mask because you're not uh, acting like someone who you actually are, right? You're, You're wearing the mask of someone you're playing their role. Well, Jesus takes that image, that, that idea, and he calls them 
hypocrites or actors, right? And so what Jesus is saying, this is a crucial distinction here. Listen, hypocrisy isn't about failure. It's about fraud. Do you hear that? Because what Jesus is not saying, Jesus is not saying you're a hypocrite because you've done wrong. He's not saying you are, you are uh, you know, somehow out of God's uh, place because you've done wrong. He's saying you're a hypocrite because you're acting. That, that is what it means. You're acting like you haven't done wrong, right? In other words, it's not about being a sinner. It's about denying that you actually are a sinner. That's what makes you a hypocrite. I've been trying to talk to my kids about this recently because they'll come home from school and, they, and they'll say, you know, someone at their, at their school said, um, you know, so-and-so did this and they, they got in trouble at school and they're a hypocrite because they said not to do that. And I said, well, be careful. That doesn't mean you're a hypocrite. It just means you do bad things. If you deny that you do bad things, that's what makes you a hypocrite. You see the difference? But in our culture, that gets so messed up. And so the hypocrites are, in our culture, the people who do wrong. But really, the hypocrites, in Jesus' eyes, are the people who don't admit they do wrong. You see the difference? This is crucial. This is crucial as we move forward. And so Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, what makes you a hypocrite is you won't admit your injustice. You keep wearing the mask. You keep wearing the mask. He goes on in verse 24. Look at what he says. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, this is strange to us because we don't understand the Jewish dietary laws. But what he's saying is gnats and camels are both uh, forbidden in the Jewish laws for, for dietary purposes, right? And so imagine this for a second. You're, you're sitting back at a barbecue and, and you, you're uh, enjoying a glass of water on a hot day and a gnat flies into your drink and now you're panicking because you can't eat gnats because it's unclean food. So you're trying to get the gnat out of your drink. And then the whole while it zooms out and what's happening at the barbecue is you're eating a camel. Jesus is saying, you're, you're so focused on the gnat, this little tiny thing, which yes, that's important, but you're missing the whole picture of what you're hap- what's happening. You're focused on the gnat and you miss the camel. And what he's saying to them is, you should be concerned about both. He's not saying tithing is wrong. He's not saying you shouldn't give or you shouldn't care about your spiritual life. What he's saying is you're so focused on your spiritual disciplines that you've missed the greater picture of what God wants for his people. You've missed the weightier things. And as long as you wear the mask, you will continue to remain in injustice. Listen, denial, denial is the worst danger for injustice. Denial. Perhaps there's no name more fundamental than, uh, to fraud than Charles Ponzi. Maybe you've heard the name before. Uh, Ponzi was arrested over 100 years ago on April 12, 1920, uh, and yet his name lives on in infamy because of now uh, what's been called the Ponzi scheme. Hopefully you haven't been part of a Ponzi scheme Uh, But if you have, we love you. Uh, But a Ponzi scheme, the basic idea, there's different kinds of Ponzi schemes, but uh, the basic idea is you take investors' money and then you pay them back with other investors' money. And so it's kind of hard to detect at first because it looks like all this money's coming in. 
right? It looks like lots and lots of money's coming in. It seems like the enterprise is working great until you find out it's not what it said it was, right? And Ponzi had this great idea. He promised people they would get a 50% return in 45 days, and then they would get a 100% return on their investment in just 90 days. I mean, if it sounds too good to be true, it just might be too good to be true. And, and so, but pe- people didn't care. They, they wanted to invest because they're thinking, I'm going to get my money back. And they heard that so-and-so got their money back and they're making tons of money. And so people are pouring money into it for over a year until he got caught. And after he got caught, people had invested, get this, $20 million in 1920. That's $300 million in today's money. Now, I tell you that to ask you this. What made Mr. Ponzi a fraud? Was it that he lacked the funds or that he lied about lacking the funds? See, you can lack the funds and they call you broke. If you lie about lacking the funds, they call you a fraud. You see the difference? What what makes it fraud is that you're lying about the truth of what's really happening. And this is what Jesus is saying about hypocrisy. He's saying hypocrisy isn't about your failure, it's about your fraud. It's that we, we will not confess, we will not uh, say what is true about us. And so many people struggle with Christianity today because there's this false assumption that Christianity is about moral improvement. It's, It's a moral improvement plan. And so people can point to, uh, to Christians and say, wow, look how terrible their life really is. And then they can point to non-Christians and say, look how great and moral their life is. Christianity must be false. Christianity must be false because if it's a moral improvement plan, the Christians aren't doing so great. Right? And then they can look back in history and they can say, if we look for injustice, the church has failed in so many ways. I mean, you can point in history to the Crusades or the mistreatment of women or the transatlantic slave trade or the devastation of indigenous people here in America, right? These are all major atrocities. Atrocities that should never happen. And people can look at it and they can say, look, the church has failed. Therefore, the church is false. As, as horrific as those failures are, does that, does that prove the church is false? Does that prove it? If, if, if your idea of Christianity is that Christianity is a moral improvement plan, then yes. If Christianity is supposed to equal people who are better than other people, then yes. But listen, is that how Jesus defines Christianity? Because the way Jesus defines it and the way the New Testament defines it, Christianity is not a moral improvement plan. Christianity is a sinner rescue plan. You hear that? It's a sinner rescue plan. right? What makes us hypocrites is when we fail and and we don't confess our failures. That's what makes us hypocrites. When we wear the mask, when we deny that we lack the funds, now we're committing spiritual fraud. Now we are saying that we are not who we really are, right? And this is where the church, I believe, has gone tragically wrong with injustice, right? In our fear of looking like hypocrites, we've denied our sin. 
We've denied our lack of care during the civil rights movement. We've lacked empathy and concern for people who live with disabilities. We've downplayed people who disagree or challenge our politics, whether that's right, left, middle, or off the charts, whatever you are, right? We've neglected our call to do justice because we work so hard to keep up this religious mask because we're afraid of confessing what's really true. Forgive us, Lord. I mean, Jesus invites us. He invites us to the freedom and the hope of taking off the mask. He's saying, you can, you can take off the mask. What does that mean? That means you can own your part. You can say, I, I am uh, guilty of those things. I am who the Bible says I am. I am truly a real sinner. I have prejudice. I have bias. I have greed. I have selfishness. I am a part of a group of people who've done wrong. Jesus is saying you can take off that mask and there's actually freedom and hope in that. Because now you're not living as a fraud. You're saying this is really who I am. And now he can deal with you. He can transform you. He can change you. He can show you his mercy. He can show you his grace. He can change his whole church into a people who without a mask can do justice. Can do justice. But we have to be honest with God. We have to be honest with each other. We have to say, you know what? It's not freedom for me to hide. It's not freedom for me to, to deny. It's freedom for me to confess. But when you're exposed, when we are exposed, what happens? What, what's our hope? And Jesus tells us this next. This is the last point, redeeming justice. He gives the fifth woe in verse 25. Look at what he says. He says, woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, listen, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. In other words, Jesus is critiquing their strategy for change. In other words, when, when they're confronted with their own sin, when they're confronted with the reality of their injustice and their involvement in these evil things, their, their temptation is to say, I'm just going to clean the outward image. I'm going to make it seem like I'm good. I'm going to clean up my Instagram. I'm going to clean up my, my friendship. You know, I'm going to clean up whatever it is, my image at work. What, whatever you think you need to do, you're, you're going to clean the outside of the cup to look perfect. So that if I have the outside of the cup good, then everyone will think I'm good. And Jesus is saying, you're missing it. He's saying if, if just the outside of the cup is clean, but the inside is full of rotten food and roaches, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. He said, you're never going to be able to do justice that way. This is why you're not doing justice. So Jesus gives them gospel hope in verse 26. Look at what he says. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Let me make it clear. What he's saying is, uh, before you start proving yourself on social media, before you declare yourself enlightened, before you tell everybody you've figured out how to do justice or whatever it is, before you make it known out in the world and, and you have an outward appearance or image of something that you're not, he says this. He says, deal with who you are on the inside. Deal with where it comes from, because if you deal with the outside first, you'll never be the kind of gospel-centered, justice-seeking person God's called you to be. You never will. But if you deal with the inside, if you let God deal with who you are, 
and you let the inward work happen, he says the outward work will happen. And the inward work only happens through God's redemption. Another way to put it is justice flows from our justification. Author Henry Nouwen tells the story of a family he knew in Paraguay. And uh, the family, uh, the father of the family was a doctor who uh, was well-known in the community, kind of a leader in the community, and he started to speak out against this uh, unjust regime and their military uh, efforts. And so because of that, people in the government got angry and they tried to take revenge on his family. And so they, they arrested his teenage son and they, unfortunately, they beat him in the prison until he died. And now when the word around the community got out that this happened, uh, people were outraged and they wanted to have a protest and uh, you know, turn his funeral into this massive protest. And the father said he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to spread the word like that. What he wanted to do was something different. He said, uh, we're going to change the way we do the funeral itself. And so uh, he went to the, to, to the prison to pick up his son's body. And instead of preparing the body for the funeral like they normally would, they took the body just as they found it in the prison. And they put it at the funeral in just the way they found it, not in a casket, but on a mattress that was in the prison. And not to get too graphic, but they had everybody who was in the funeral take a turn walking up at the front to look at the son as he was in the prison. And the guy said, my goal here is to show on display what injustice actually looks like. Isn't that what God did at Calvary? I mean, think about this. As God is dealing with injustice in our hearts, as he's dealing with injustice in the world, God is putting on display on the lynching tree of the cross this body of Jesus naked and marked with scars. Exposed in all the violence and injustice of this world, Jesus exposed the horrors of our humanity. He exposed the horrors of racism, the horror of human trafficking, the horror of selfishness, the horrors of being uh, consumed with ourselves. But even more, the cross exposed the horror of our own sin against a personal divine God. The cross shouts, this is what you deserve for what you've done. This is justice for your rebellion. This is your sin and all its scandal. Your sin is torturous. Your sin is wicked. It sent God to hell on a tree. That's what the cross declares. But at the same time, listen, at the same moment, the cross reveals the horror of our sin. It, it, it beautifully reveals the holy love of our God. The holy love of a God who Jesus would lower himself to lift us up from our lowly condition. That when we were naked in the shame of our sin, he clothed us in his righteousness. When we were burdened in the guilt of our sin, he liberated us in his perfection. When we were stained in the failures of our past, he washed us in his blood. When we were dead in our hope for the future, he renewed us by his spirit. This is the hope we have in the cross. This is the hope that makes it possible for us to say, I can take off the mask because I know there's one who's taken his life for me. You can say, I can take off the mask because I'm putting on Christ, right? He's enough to cover you. He's enough to forgive you. He's enough to change you. There's nothing to fear. There's nothing to hide from. There's nothing to deny. You can say, this is who I am. This is who I am and this is who Jesus died for. Jesus exposed himself to the world because of my sin so that he could save my soul. 
fully exposed and yet fully loved, right? His justice is what makes us just. His justice in the cross is what out of us creates a new life. And so today, as we come to the table, do you need to take off your mask and allow Jesus to love you into loving others? That's the only way. The way of justice is Jesus loving us so that we can be just people, right? It's taking off the mask, which the Bible calls repentance, right? You're turning away from this denial, this fraud, this living for yourself. Now I'm turning towards Jesus. I'm putting my faith and trust in him. I am taking off the mask so that I can take on who he is in my life. That's what it means to repent and believe, that I'm trusting in Jesus, not my image, not my attempts at trying to clean the outside of the cup. I'm trusting Jesus to clean me on the inside so that the outside, my life of righteousness and justice and mercy and faithfulness comes from a life that's been transformed in him. That's the good news of Jesus. That's the good news of a God who works justice through us, the church. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are the crucified God, the one who was unjustly put on a cross for unjust people like us. You were hanging there by your hands and feet, breathing your last breath, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because we, your people, had forsaken you in so many ways. And this way of injustice that we've been wearing the mask, Lord, we confess. We confess both individually and as a church that we need your forgiveness. We need your grace to come in and wash us clean. Wash us clean on the inside of the church, that the outside of the church may be full of beauty. And may it be a church that is known in the community as a church of justice and mercy and faithfulness, a church that loves you and loves you truly as we love our neighbors. Lord, that's our calling. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that, not for us, but for your glory ultimately, that we may bring you as most, the most glory we can. We pray in Christ's name.